Hi, this is Ryan Landau, and you're listening to The Drip, a podcast about how to caffeinate your campaigns. Today, I'm joined by Eric Hurd. Eric is the founder of A to Z Ventures, and he has long been a leader in the sports media and sports content industry. In this episode, we go deep into the fantasy sports and sports gambling categories, what works, where to start, and how can challenger sports media brands best leverage fantasy and betting to drive awareness for their games and program. In a few moments, you'll hear Eric and I geeking out about content and content strategies. Off the mic, some of our geekier conversations have been about the role that audio can play as part of the overall brand content mix. To map the audio universe a little bit, there is broadcast radio. Leagues, teams, and media companies have audio content that lives on AM, FM radio. These shows and games can often be streamed through radio station apps and services like TuneIn. Many sports entities also have audio content that can be heard on SiriusXM. Of course, there are podcasts. The leagues, teams, and media companies have a presence on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but so too do athletes, aspiring talking heads, and just regular fans. What broadcast radio, SiriusXM, and podcasts have in common is that the audio there is long form. It's audio content that's either programmed by multi-hour day parts or conversations intended to be more immersive. Here's the thing. Not all audio content needs to be long. And not all audio content should be part of a radio show or as a podcast. In video, brands are really good at taking the main piece of content, cutting it up into smaller pieces, and sharing those versions and chapters across their channels. Why doesn't this happen in audio? In my day job, I'm co-founder and CEO of Venly, an audio platform that enables brands and publishers to share and measure audio content on their owned and operated channels, all in players that are branded as the organization. Brands have invested immense resources in email marketing, website, Discord communities, social media, and SMS. Share your audio there. Put your audio where your fans are. Whether it's sharing archived content, developing chapters from long-form podcasts, or creating original audio, Venly facilitates an elegant and data-rich audio experience. Interested in learning more? Email me directly at brian at venly.co. That's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at Venly, V-E-N-N-L-Y, dot C-O. And now, the exceptional Eric Hurd. Hi, Eric. Hello. Eric Hurd is currently founder and CEO of A to Z Ventures, a consultancy and venture development firm focused on sports, betting, media, branded content, and tech. Heard was a co-founder of The Post Game in 2008, where he helped build, scale, and operate the company for 15 years, rising from sales leadership roles to president and CEO of the organization. Prior to The Post Game, Eric was one of the youngest ever individuals to be hired as an agent at Hollywood-based talent agency ICM. Fresh out of college, he was one of the first hires at Red Zebra Broadcasting, the Washington Commander's pioneering media company. Eric is an active investor and advisor for sports, entertainment, media, digital technology, and sports betting businesses. Eric is a graduate of the sports business program at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Eric, thanks for hanging. Happy to be here. And might I compliment you and say you should be the voice of whatever professional team you'd like to be the voice of. So I went to Syracuse undergrad and I was not in Newhouse. I was in the policy school called Maxwell. And I often watch sports thinking to myself what could have been for me i could have been the next bob costas like every other syracuse university graduate thinks they're going to become it ain't over you've got time i know some people it's over no it, no it's, it's that dream that dream that dream has, has died 
Well, thank you for for being here. You have an awesome background. I'm really excited to dig in, in particular, into some of the content uh, and marketing strategies that you've helped implement for your partners that, as we just read in your bio, are media and technology embedding. So you've touched a big breath here in sports. But you've had the opportunity, I think really uniquely, to work with both leagues and sports media companies. And it's often a symbiotic relationship in that the leagues have games and the media companies help to create and distribute that content. Aside from deal size, what's important to leagues, teams, and content companies when considering the working relationship? What are some of the priorities that you've experienced when putting those deals together? Yeah, uh, loaded question, but interesting one because I think the answer has really evolved. While I like to think I, I was kind of ahead of where we're about to go here, it's still evolving and dynamically changing. If we were having this conversation 15 years ago, my answer was something like, these teams, leagues, you know, the, the sports properties themselves benefit from these media partners for the obvious thing. And that's what the only thing they're thinking about, which is distribution to a larger audience for their live games or their live programming. That's where the majority of the value is. Like that, that's that's where the math is done. My thesis that I've operated under for the past 15 years, continue to operate under, is the marketplace for rights outside of the live game. So the called the 21 hours off the field is disproportionately undervalued and ripe for investment. And I don't think the marketplace, meaning the sports media companies that air the footage and partner with the leagues and teams. I don't think they understood that until the last few years. And I don't think they still fully understand it. But that concept, which is very bluntly to say, the 21 hours of content like ESPN's studio shows that support its investment in SEC football, or like you know, big noon for Fox, which is their college football studio show or the renowned college game day or, you know, studio shows for baseball or football or or, or whatever. Those are incredibly important to cultivate the fans, the, the fandom and the perspectives that ultimately come out as the voices during the games. And, and you don't see a math equation done on those rights but to me, increasingly so, that has been a driving force of value that elevated impact of the relationships that rights holders and media properties have. Because ultimately, and you and I are good examples of this, we consume content outside of the 21 hours of the live game. And so ESPN, NBC, Flow Sports, Fox, all these guys want us to be paying attention to them not just during those live games, but those other windows. And, and being the official rights holder and, and having a media rights deal as broadly or narrowly as you may define media rights, there's a lot of value there. We've seen over the last 10, 15 years, local and regional baseball rights balloon. And I think it's very much for the reason you just described, which is you have this three-hour baseball game, but you have the pregame, you have the postgame. And before you know it, you've programmed six hours of television on a summer Tuesday night you know, there is a real benefit and the, the cost benefit cost to like, how else am I going to program six hours of linear TV without yeah. this is is astronomical in many instances for a local TV or regional TV provider. You bring up a point about the six hours here. What often goes unsaid 
in the sports business conversation we all hear, or at least those of you who care about the space who are listening to this, the regional sports networks, the RSNs, you know, Sinclair and N- or Bally Sports and NBC Root Sports is another one. Like they're the stakeholders in that universe. That business model gets a lot of criticism, and it's really a cord cutter conversation. It's like a the business model doesn't make sense anymore when you can go direct to consumer for a displaced fan of the Kansas City Chiefs right here who ultimately can get that footage elsewhere. But but it, and it becomes like a cord cutters versus like linear cable conversation. But I think the bigger problem is that the six hours of programming that an RSN is really investing in with those teams, they're paying a lot of money for that six hours effectively. And it leaves them very little budget to do anything interesting with the other 18 hours of the day. And therefore their sellers don't have anything to sell, but for those six hours. So they'll sell all the in-game and pre-game and post-game spots. But what are they selling for 18 hours? And they have some of the worst content that happens during those 18 hours, but you still have people who would watch it if you put something good up there. And that's that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But when I think of like some of the problems that I'm trying to fix in this space, or it's like, program your RSNs better, you also need to change your business model to do that. And so let's talk about some new business models and new opportunities yeah. for companies. And it's really around, I think, sports betting, fantasy. This has obviously been around for a long time, but we've seen immense innovation in just the last few years here. I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but like fantasy sports is very much about the players and gambling is often about the teams. There are, of course, exceptions to that. But if you were to start from scratch, you know, how would you design a fantasy content execution for a partner and how would that maybe be similar or different from how you might design a content strategy uh, around gambling? It's important to understand just how important fantasy is to the American sports fan. And I, I specifically say American because in other parts of the world where soccer is in cricket in India, like is the number one sport fantasy it certainly exists, but it is not anywhere near the level of importance that it is in the States. So if you are a content creator or publisher or distribution source of any kind, and you are thinking about appealing to an American sports audience, you have to have fantasy sports related content. The fantasy market, while the numbers themselves are at this point in time are highlighted against like actual sport, legal sports betting. The reality is, is a lot of it is the same audience. And a lot of those people who are betting on sports have only got into betting because they were fantasy players first. So that conversion cycle, which is more of a business issue is important to understand as you're thinking about the programming of content, because while to your point, fantasy is a player game and sports betting traditionally is a, team-based entity and that really is one of the like the divisions of the legal betting guidelines or rules paspa which got repealed in a few years ago you're starting to see a convergence where there are companies who are towing the line between fantasy and betting where you're betting on fantasy outcomes you know so imagine you are placing a bet not on the team's not on which team's going to win, but on which player is going to throw for more yards or which player is going to have more fantasy points than somebody else. And so as a content creator and as a content strategy, and, and I have 
some clients right now who, who are asking you these exact questions. You cannot program content for an American audience without considering how to make fantasy part of the main topic if you're talking about betting and performance and actual things that happen on the field. It, it is just key. And so if I'm gambling or if I'm trying to win a league, a fantasy league, I'm looking for some sort of edge, right? I'm looking for an insight. How is that getting communicated effectively in content? Because, you know, especially in a broadcast medium or if you're leveraging social media where it's like a one to many, 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 everyone's getting that insight, right? So how does it become special for the programmer and how does it become special for the recipient of that information? There's no shortage or lack of really smart data and analytics companies who effectively take, let's use the NFL for a second. second. They take NFL data, which they license from, you know, the data providers that sell that data to them. And then they, they run it through their own machines. And what does that mean? That means that they're effectively taking objective data and marrying it to, in, in some cases, other non-football related data points like weather or like the amount of time between a game or the time zone difference or these things that could impact performance that don't come up as the first thought in an insights related conversation. And they marry the two together, create these like really interesting and, and skillful algorithms and they process really interesting insight points. And so there's a bunch of companies that do it. So there's a bit of a battle of, well, we do it the most interesting way or our data and insights are the strongest. And like, that's healthy for any business ecosystem to have multiple players do it. What translates though to action is what matters. The reason a sports media company and ESPN all the way down to like a football blog might benefit from having that insight is that they are better informing and educating a sport, a prospective sports better in a way that's going to make them feel the most confident to make that bet. So there is no value to insights if they don't provoke engagement or, or action. And I think there are only a select few that actually take their game far enough, meaning data players that take their insights far enough to actually do that. But I love that space. I think it's super interesting. There's all kinds of advanced tech that are taking, you know, biometric data and marrying it to objective game data. There's certain algorithms that take the idea of this player performs better after traveling from East coast to West coast in between their games and having lost the week before because they have a chip on their shoulder. And like, I fundamentally understand that, like that, that actually makes sense to me. So like, maybe I'll take that insight and use it as my fuel to, to make a bet space is blowing up. It's just, it's about the packaging really that differentiates, I think the providers and and how it's displayed. I don't know if I'd call it a passion. Maybe it's a passion. Definitely an interest and a skill set of yours uh, is working with emerging sports properties. Where do you see growth for leagues that aren't the NFL, that 
aren't the NBA, Major League Baseball? Is it in creating interest around gambling and fantasy content for these leagues that are sort of on the fringe of of everyday awareness? Like, what are the levers to pull if you are an emerging sports type of league, type of team, a brand like that? I think you nailed it with the passion. I have a huge chip on my shoulder for the mid the mid tiers of the of the world. Yes, betting is is a huge part of that because it it provokes further engagement. You know, a great example is if you're a basketball league that plays in the summer when the NBA is not playing, basketball is a very well understood sport. People know how to bet on it. So if you're a basketball league like the Canadian Elite Basketball League, the CEBL, they play in the summer. They are have the potential to be a significant portion of all basketball handle, meaning all basketball bets that are happening in the summer. What a great opportunity for that league name and and betting markets to be part of that in the league and and its media partners benefit from that increased engagement. The, the other piece of this is to understand the change in audience consumption from when we were kids to today, which is the proliferation of technology has leveled the playing field to some extent for emerging properties versus you know, the behemoths we all know very well. And what I mean by that is every sports league of any size, any individual with means can create a social account, a social identity, hire content creators or influencers to create and, and propagate that content to drive interest of their league. And you don't need to be a league that generates billions of dollars to do it. And I'd argue that some of the best properties who are great at that are not the top, you know, six to 10 leagues throughout the world. They are the emerging properties because emerging properties have more hunger. They are scrappy. They are the things that startup and entrepreneurial businesses of any sort are forced to be uh, in order for them to succeed. So, uh, Another way to say this, if you look at the executives who are often in the front office running, you know, emerging sports properties, they're often the most talented, innovative, progressive executives in sports business because they have to be in order to get that organization to succeed in this world. And it's, it's the same thing as both of us as entrepreneurs that we go through in building our businesses, like we have to think differently. If we don't think differently, our businesses will fail, period. Yeah, my my eight-year-old is a huge Justin Jefferson fan. He's a huge Joe Burrow fan. I want him to be a Giants fan, but that's just not how I think this economy is playing out for younger generations because for him, it's Madden and it's YouTube videos of the gritty. And it's Joe Burrow, like walking through the tunnel on his way to some like totally dripped out suit that looks only cool on him and a handful of people in the universe. But that's what a second grader is going to gravitate towards as opposed to sitting there maybe for four hours watching the Giants and the Bears like not score touchdowns. So I, I do think there's a huge opportunity, as you mentioned, for these progressive organizations to really think about sort of the players and the stuff that's maybe happening off the field to cultivate interest, not just for people who are gambling and playing fantasy sports, but for kids who are like sort of in this YouTube Madden TikTok type of generation. It's a, it's an interesting opportunity and interesting way to think about, you know, building stars. Um, I'll get you out on this question. Uh, NIL 
otherwise known as name image likeness, is a new and evolving set of rules that allows college athletes to monetize their name, their image, and their likeness through sponsorships. I try and stay away from crystal ball predictions, but where do you see the relationship between media and NIL playing out over the next year or two? What are some of the trends that we should be watching for? Huge area. The way media plays with NIL, what I think you're going to see and you're definitely starting to see is if you are, let's just look at the obvious, the money-making sports, which is basketball and football, the rights holders of those sports. So like NBC Sports or or, uh, ESPN, like they're going to have to create NIL programming to reward the athletes that are participating in the sports that make them so much money. What does that look like? I think it'll look like something different for every entity. But but the other reason for that is these college athletes now effectively need agents to represent their interests in front of brands. And it's this big sports media companies that have the sales forces that are already talking to those brands and representing the media interests of their teams and leagues or conferences, they're already in market doing that. So the natural next step for a media company is to partner with the conferences and the, the sports, the conferences and the, and the universities that they already represent the media interests for and come up with a way to represent the interests of NIL for the athletes of those schools. You're going to see Learfield IMG do it. You're going to see NBC do it. I'm sure in some way, shape or form, you'll see ESPN, though they'll be late, get into it. But ultimately, it's all about who's bringing in the money for these NIL athletes. And there's only such limited bandwidth and reach that these individuals have for themselves in their local markets. And if you're really, you know, a a special nationally recognized athlete, then offers are going to be coming to you, but to get wide representation on a university level and for all your athletes, you have to leverage the, the wide sales or the larger sales forces of media companies. I'm joined today by Eric Hurd. Eric, thank you for an incredible conversation about some of the trends and some of the stuff that's happening in sports media, sports content, sports business. Pleasure having you on. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brad.